National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Classical education has gained interest in recent years, even amid the coronavirus pandemic. Chesterton schools are one of the networks of classical education academies that has served Catholic high school students in numerous cities throughout the country. What's the appeal of this classical model of education in general and Chesterton schools in particular? Register contributor Paul Sens has the story. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Executive Editor and Bureau Chief in Washington. Matthew, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you? Good. I'm looking forward to catching up with you in our second segment on an editor's corner. There's a lot of news to to showcase, and I'm curious to hear about your time in New York City this week. Yep. NAPA conference, uh, but that's to come. All right. Very good. Yes. Always interested to know what's happening at the Napa Institute. But first, I'm happy to turn to the subject of Catholic education. It's something near and dear to my heart uh, as a product of Catholic education. Um, But I've also been following um, through the register a number of developments throughout the country in in this classical education model. Um, Of course, Chesterton schools have come up in in our reports on the classical education model, but we've seen that this is a a blooming um, school network, the classical uh, education model throughout the country. And a lot of people have asked me in just personal conversations, well, what exactly is uh, classical education? And, and that's what I wanted to kind of explore today, but also highlight this, the growth of Chesterton schools. Well, thankfully, uh, Paul Sens wrote uh, for the Register an article titled, Chesterton Schools Networks Continue to Grow in Its Ranks. And uh, last month, I got a lot of attention at uh, the Register website. So Paul is an uh, a graduate of University of Portland in music and theology, and he earned a master's of arts degree from that same university in pastoral ministry. Uh, He's contributed to uh, several different uh, Catholic publications like Catholic World Report or Catholic Answers. Um, But as I said, he writes um, often for the the Register as well. Uh, Interestingly, uh, especially in relation to this week, he's published a book on Fatima, and it's called Fatima, A Hundred Questions and Answers About the Marian Apparitions. And of course, with October 13th being this past week where uh, we we remember the miracle of the sun, we can can talk a bit about Fatima with Paul. Uh, He lives in Oklahoma with his wife and uh, their four children, and I'm very happy to welcome uh, Paul Sens to the show today. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. So, Paul, these these Chesterton schools, um, I I mean, they're they're growing all over the country. I think the last I checked, there are about twenty seven in in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, but but what exactly are they? Um, uh, they're considered a network, and and what exactly does that mean? The the the, the way that the Chesterton Schools Network operates is interesting. Uh, Dale Alquist, who is the who many people know was because of his association with G.K. Chesterton and his involvement with the, with the network, he described it as they sort of have like a, a kit for for schools to start up. So it's not, so the schools are associated with each other, um, and they they kind of uh, 
um, get started from a kind of a grassroots approach um, and pop up all over the place. Um, but but they are kind of associated with each other in this network, and they can collaborate. Um, and as you mentioned, there are schools all over the country and in Canada. They also have um, some some other international schools as well. There's one in Italy, um, and they're they're just starting one in Iraq as well. So it's really wow. really spreading wide. Wow! Right. So it's like they provide the curriculum, uh, they provide um, materials to help the school begin, and, and kind of a guide in in terms of yeah. how to educate and to build such a school. Are they usually related to uh, the diocese or or archdiocese in the cities within their where they are are located? No, I believe they're typically uh, independent. Although in some cases they're they're connected with maybe a, um, a, diocesan, a diocesan school or high school, and it might it might be a sort of a, a sub program, but but typically they're kind of an independently operating uh, school. Okay, and they are known um, for the classical model, and that's uh, yeah. kind of what seems to attract many people to them. So, and, and that's the question I kind of teased this show with: What is the classical model of education. Can can you describe that for us? Yeah, the, the, the classical model of education, which, as you mentioned, has been growing in popularity over over recent um, years and decades, really the, the kind of chief operating principle seems to be going back to going back to the sources and, and a, a well-rounded education. So, um, you know, there's there a lot of classical programs are great books programs, so-called, you know, so they're, they're going back and the students are reading primary sources in their entirety. They're reading Socrates, they're reading Thomas Aquinas, they're reading Augustine, they're reading Dickens, they're reading Dostoevsky, you know, they're, they're, they're reading Isaac Newton. They're, and, and it's well-rounded trying, trying to, to cover everything from rhetoric and logic and philosophy to theology to fine arts and um, math and science, you know. So, so, um, but it's kind of this this uh, liberal arts, well-rounded, back to the sources model of education. Sure, sure. And I'm going to bring in uh, Matthew Bunsen here because he's—I uh, always like to call him our house historian and theologian. <laughs> he's he's got a degree in church history, uh, Doctor Matthew Bunsen. Um, uh, Doctor Matthew Bunsen. I, I mean, from your perspective as a historian, uh, what is this classical model? I mean, uh, we we kind of are thinking about it as as people who were not educated in this model per se. I, I definitely wasn't. Uh, Paul, were you educated in this model? No, but I can certainly see its appeal. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. Me too. But but Matthew, what's the history on this? Well, exactly. What, what we're really looking at is an education movement or a, a form of education that emphasizes uh, creating as well-rounded a human being as possible. And that means looking at almost all the fields of intellectual endeavor, including, of course, faith and reason. So we're looking at history, literature, language. But uh, if we look at the sort of medieval model that uh, really continued well into the modern era, the trivium and the quadrivium, uh, we're seeing that uh, literature, poetry, you can see history, arts, languages, again, trying to create as well-rounded a person as possible. Uh, and at the same time, then, forming them as human beings who are interested in the world uh, and have a lot to contribute to the world. 
Yeah. So I, you know, I was introduced to this model of education in college. I went to Franciscan University and I did a great books program. Paul, you mentioned, you know, great books being a part of this. And, and when I studied the great books program and we read primary sources, like the ones you mentioned, and then we were in uh, small groups that would discuss these with the guide of our professor, uh, this just brought to light, you know, what classical education is and what education had been for centuries, you know. And some of my classmates in, at Franciscan at that time in, in these uh, this Honors Great Books program, they were from a classical school in Massachusetts, I think it was, and I was envious of them. They went to a high school um, that they had classical education, you know, from ninth to 12th grade. And what they described, I was just, I just loved. And I got, really was envious of that. And, um, and so it's really nice to see now uh, that this is being offered on a, you know, on a wider scale. Um, I was recently made aware that here in my area, in the, in the New Orleans, Greater New Orleans area, there is a a, a group of um, of Catholic parents that are trying to start a Chesterton school. In fact, they're hoping to open next next fall, and you know, so they're doing uh, a lot of promos within the community and open houses so that they can get gain interest. Um, I was happy to hear of that because I didn't have that opportunity um, when I was growing up. Uh, Paul, what do you think is the interest? in this model, uh, you know, as you've talked to people about it, um, what's the interest in it? I think one of the things that I hear the most often is that people like that it teaches, it teaches you how to think, how to think critically. Um, you know, you, it, it, because it's so well-rounded and because you go back to these, um, you know, classical historical sources that have stood the test of time, it, it really teaches you how to think. And so um, I know as a, as a parent myself, that's, a, that's appealing. That trying, because one of my primary responsibilities is to prepare my children to be in the world, you know, and, and the world is a tougher and tougher place to be in for faithful Catholics. And so teaching them how to think critically and how to, uh, uh, you know, stand up in the, in the, Wind, the winds that blow blow against us in, in society. I think that's very appealing, and so that that that's why, even with so many uh, schools and and just about everything being shut down the last the last year and a half, there was something like half a dozen new Chesterton schools opened opened their doors during that time because people are people are just are very hungry for this kind of an education. Right. And I think what I've heard, too, to add to that, and, and maybe this is why over the last year you've seen so many um, of these Chesterton schools springing up, is is that people began to get concerned over, if you will, the bureaucracy that happens around education, um, not only in the public school system, you know, one school shuts down, they all shut down, but also in the Catholic school system, just because, you know, the Catholic school system for so long has been based on a, a, mo- a system model, not just a parochial school that's independently run. And so the same thing happens. You, you know, one shuts down, they all shut down kind of, of, of mode. Yeah. And, and for many, that's perceived as bureaucratic. 
Also, the curriculum is often um, the same across many of those schools, even within the Catholic system. And and the register of several years, you know, the past five years or so, have covered has covered the uh, common core curriculum that we heard from yeah. many uh, many parents just frustrated over. And I see it even in my my kids' school, and it causes me uh, some frustration. And uh, and so these are some of the reasons why people have grown restless with the Catholic education model that they have seen in their parochial schools. Uh, they feel like we should be offering something richer, more unique from a Catholic, a Catholic standpoint. And I'm, right. I'm beginning to g- agree as I have y- kids in young, you know, in early ages, um, in, in young, you know, uh, younger grades where I see how this is the, the foundation. <laughs> and I really right. do, as you say, want to, to, to see them learning how to think. It's very, very important. So, Paul, thanks for bringing uh, this article to the register. It's titled, Chesterton Schools Network Continues to Grow in Its Rank. And that can, in in its ranks, (laughs) that can be found at ncregister.com. But before we go, I do want to talk to you about your book. I mean, October 13th is when we celebrate the miracle of the sun, and this is obviously an important moment to call people uh, to prayer and to entrust ourselves to Our Lady. Um, what can you uh, tell us about uh, uh, about your book and and how it might be a good resource for uh, both parents and and as they educate their own children, but also to enrich our faith life? Yeah, thank you. Um, briefly, I'll, I'll just say you mentioned the book is subtitled "100 Questions and Answers About the Marian Apparitions." So it's a short book. It's about oh, 120, 130 pages. Um, and there are 100 questions and answers meant to be... It's meant, it's meant to be sort of a uh, a reference guide for someone to pull off the shelf if their you know, question occurs to them and they want more information about Fatima. Or, um, you know, maybe if they're watching one of the many uh, films that have been made about Fatima and they want some more information or, or anything like that. So, And frankly... I thought that I knew a lot about Fatima apparitions <laughs> until I was researching the book, and I discovered all this all this wonderful uh, information that I that I had no idea about. So um, I know that it was enlightening for me to write it, and I hope that it's enlightening for people to read it. And I hope that that uh, you know, as as Our Lady wants nothing more than to bring people to her Son. So I hope that anyone who reads it grows closer to Our Lady, and even more importantly, closer to Jesus and grows in holiness and, and prayer and and in that uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Well, Paul, thank you for highlighting these two very important things. One, you know, a way of educating our children in the faith at Chesterton schools and classical education in general. Uh, but also, as you say, you know, putting um, our faith in Jesus through Our Lady, uh, there's there's really nothing greater that we could do at this moment with so many uh, struggles in the world um, that uh, this is just a wonderful way to center ourselves on what is most important. Uh, Paul sends thanks for being with us today on Register Radio. Thank you so much. When we come back, Matthew and I will have an editor's corner highlighting some of the greatest news stories, or I guess the greatest content, on ncregister.com right now. This is Register Radio on EWTN Radio. Stay tuned for more. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so 
critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, and I'm joined by my co-host here on Register Radio, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Executive Bureau Chief in Washington, D.C., but right now he's in New York City. Um, Matthew, what have you been doing in New York? Well, I'm attending the uh, New York uh, NAPA conference. Uh, it's uh, what they call Principled Entrepreneurship, and it brings together Catholic business leaders and experts in Catholic social teaching uh, together here in New York. It's smaller than the usual NAPA conference out west, and uh, EWTN is uh, the, the joy, really, of uh, streaming well, so many of the talks. Of course, the MC for this is always Father Robert Spitzer, so that alone is worth coming to New York just to <laughs> meet him and to hear him talk. So it's been a very remarkable conference, especially coming out of COVID. There's so many issues to consider about that. One of the highlights for this uh, conference has been the Eucharistic procession that uh, went down 7th Avenue in Manhattan for about a mile and a half from the Church of the Holy Innocents to the hotel where we're all staying. And and I think uh, this came as a surprise to a lot of New Yorkers. Yes, yes. I I did hear about that from some of the participants. And the the remark was, is, you know, typically when uh, the Napa conference is out in California, it's on a, it's on a resort, you know, and, and the people you pass are not necessarily, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of expecting it in a, in a way, but here in the streets of New York, I mean, people just aren't expecting expecting a Eucharistic uh, a procession, and um, and and so he's the person I talked to said, yeah, it was it was interesting to see the surprise, but also that there was a lot of signs of of respect, and and that's a good thing if we can bring bring Christ to people's mind and in a new way uh, throughout the day. So, and I understand, Matthew, that this is a, a new thing uh, for the Napa Institute to kind of bring conferences to another location outside of Napa. That's right. Well, the uh, this is the seventh um, one on sort of, uh, this type of uh, entrepreneurial approaches, you know, principled entrepreneurship. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been in different locations. Of course, the, this is a, a cooperative venture between the Napa Institute and the Catholic University of America's uh, Bush School of Business. And uh, for a number of years, it was held in Washington. And this is, I think, a real opportunity to bring it to what we all agree is uh, the financial center of the world. And right. I think, uh, I, I'm hoping it stays here. If for no other reason that we can have that Eucharistic procession again next year, because this mm-hmm. is something that uh, the city needs. It reminded me of uh, last month being in Budapest for the International Eucharistic Congress and the really quite memorable, uh, phenomenal uh, Eucharistic procession that took place there through the streets of the city. 
uh, about 150 to 200,000 people. And the point was, in so many ways, uh, bringing Christ into the city, but uh, we're told that things like this just aren't possible anymore, that the world moved on from faith. And uh, this type of procession in a place like Budapest and now in Manhattan tells you very clearly and powerfully that otherwise. Right, just the interest that people did have. So, well, yeah. moving moving on to some of the content, as I called the greatest content right now at the Register site when I was uh, teasing this segment, um, it, you know... This week has a, an interesting thing, again, for a historian like you. Uh, the smiling Pope is to be beatified <laughs> after a miracle. And this was approved by Pope Francis this last week. Who's the smiling Pope, and, and what do we well, have here? Well, it... it I'm confessing to my creeping age that I remember Pope John Paul I very vividly from 1978. Uh, he was the successor uh, to Pope St. Paul VI, uh, who died in 1978, and uh, John Paul I, uh, Cardinal Albino Luciani, who had been the Patriarch of Venice, was elected in something of a surprise. His name wasn't really considered among the papabili heading into the conclave to replace Paul. And uh, sure enough, he came out uh, and earned the title, the Smiling Pope, for his great humor. He couldn't stop laughing in so many ways, uh, and the joy that he had was contagious. But as we also remember, he died very unexpectedly on September 28th, just about 33 days after his election. That's one of the shortest pontificates in history, but of course it paved the way then for the election of the Colossus of John Paul II. Right. I mean, it's such an interesting turn of events in that in that one year, the year of three popes. We've written about that before at ncregister.com. If anybody uh, searched that on our site, you'd get a very interesting article about about that year. Uh, but again, this week there was something else that was, um, I, I think, historic in the life of the church, and that is uh, the Synod on Synodality was launched uh, last weekend by Pope Francis. Uh, what's unique about this is that it's a synod not on a particular topic like marriage or um, what if uh, so many uh, family or or youth as the last ones have been, but it's a synod on synods or synodality. <laughs> well, <that's laughs> Matthew, right. it's kind of it's unique and and again, what what is the historical nature of this particular meeting? Well, it's, it's historic, A, because uh, in the history of the synods, and we have to go back to the time right after the Second Vatican Council, we go back to Pope St. Paul VI, that uh, we have not really had uh, a synod studying uh, a specific type of theme quite like this. The synodality has emerged as uh, increasingly, I think, one of the pillars of uh, Pope Francis's pontificate, and we can get into a an entire series of shows on what synodality actually means, and that's something that I think everyone in the church is still trying to sort of come to a, a proper understanding about. Uh, as a hat tip, I would really encourage everyone to read Edward Penton's very interesting interview uh, for the Register with uh, Cardinal Mario Grech, uh, the head of the Synod of Bishops, as he tries to explain what that means too. But this is also unusual in the sense that it is a multi-year process. Uh, it's opening, uh, just opened with Pope Francis, but it's going to take years of a massive global process of uh, investigation and assessment and discussions uh, before we actually get to the Synod of Bishops in October 2023. 
Right. And I mean, I should note that what was opened in Rome really is going to be opened this weekend in many dioceses across the, the world and not just the United States, but, but really it's a, this is the global phase. This is the phase where local dioceses are opening synods to, to listen um, and to encounter uh, what uh, the Catholics uh, of that uh, region are or seeing as the urgent needs of of their diocese, and and this is this is how the Pope has planned it. Now we have another interesting piece you mentioned, um, Edward Penton's piece with uh, Cardinal Grech, but who had who's head of this process. Um, but Father De Souza also wrote a piece that's quite interesting, and he raises some of the questions uh, that remain about this whole process and what it how it's going to take place and what it hopes to accomplish. That piece is titled Synod on synodality launches, yet many questions remain, and that's, of course, at ncregister.com. Matthew, we have barely delved into what the offerings at uh, ncregister.com have been this week, but we are already out of time. So I'm going to invite our listeners to go to ncregister.com for much more news, analysis, and commentary. And as always, uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on ewtn.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.